Hello and welcome back to the Jane Eyre Public Access Read Along with Womance. I'm Morgan. I'm reading the odd chapters. And I'm Isabeau, reading the even chapters. And this week we are going to read chapter seven, which is, in fact, an odd number. A lucky number, Morgan. <laughs> Since seven days is such a long, long time. Isabeau, could you do a quick recap of chapter six? Indeed. We find our erstwhile heroine, Jane Eyre, settling into Lowood School, and she has her first real conversation with her new best friend, Helen Burns, who's a dark horse for the novel in the sense that she is constantly telling Jane what she must bear, and she works as a sounding board to say things like, well, if you read the New Testament and you look at how Christ suffered, you too are born to bear and suffer and die. She's a bit of a Debbie Downer, but she gives Jane a useful perspective on her rebellion. Yeah, I do think it is going to be a rebut to Helen Burns. You know what I just thought of? I've been thinking about Burns Night a lot lately for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. Is Helen Scottish? She certainly comes from the north of England. I don't know if she is truly Scottish or if she just comes from like Yorkshire. Right, right. Did you hear that for the first time ever, Scotland is consistently majority polling for independence? Good for them. You know, I've got to say, as an American, getting independence from Britain was the right move for us. Unequivocally. And I just wish Scotland all the best. That's all I have to say about that. (laughs) Because, like, what are they going to do? Like, point out that we have Trump like they have Trump, too. So They sure do. Okay. Without further adieu, Chapter 7 of Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. Bronte? Is that where we landed? Okay, good. My first quarter at Lowood seemed an age, and not the golden age either. (laughs) It comprised an irksome struggle with difficulties in habituating myself to new rules and unwanted tasks. The fear of failure in those points harassed me worse than the physical hardships of my lot, though there were no trifles. During January, February, and part of March, the deep snows, and after their melting, the almost impassable roads prevented our stirring beyond the garden walls except to go to church. But within these limits, we had to pass an hour every day in the open air. Our clothing was insufficient to protect us from the severe cold. We had no boots. The snow got into our shoes and melted there. Our ungloved hands became numbed and covered with chillblains, as were our feet. I had to look up what a chillblain is. It's like whenever your knuckles get all red and puffy from being cold. I remember well the distancing irritation I endured from this cause every evening when my feet inflamed and the torture of thrusting the swelled, raw, and stiff toes into my shoes in the morning. Then the scanty supply of food was distressing. With the keen appetites of growing children, we had scarcely sufficient to keep alive a delicate invalid. When I was growing up, I remember that we went through, me and my brother who's nine years older than me, we went through two gallons of milk a week. Who can afford a child? I mean, I get it. But also, I think what's interesting about what's happening here is this like broader discussion about like child welfare, which was actually quite modern and progressive for this book to be like, these are the concerns that we have for children and like we need to feed them well and like keeping them in these situations is not only cruel, but like bad for the empire. Well, I think Brocklehurst will have some counterpoints (laughs) for you here shortly. 
From this deficiency of nourishment resulted an abuse, which pressed hardly on the younger pupils. Whenever the famished great girls had an opportunity, they would coax or menace the little ones out of their portion, take their lunch money. Many a time I had shared between two claimants the precious morsel of brown bread distributed at tea time, and after relinquishing to a third half the contents of my mug <laughs> of coffee, I have swallowed the remainder with an accompaniment of secret tears forced from me by the exigency of hunger. I have swallowed the remainder with an accompaniment of secret tears. She's drinking her own tears, her own secret tears. Yeah, dude. Making her coffee go farther. Sundays were dreary days in that wintry season. We had to walk two miles to Brocklebridge Church, where our patron officiated. We set out cold. We arrived at church colder. During the morning service, we became almost paralyzed. It was too far to return to dinner, and an allowance of cold meat and bread in the same penurious proportion observed in our ordinary meals was served around between the services. At the close of the afternoon service, we returned by an exposed and hilly road where the bitter wind blowing over a range of snowy summits to the north almost flayed the skin from our faces. This is very like up a hill both ways. Mm -hmm. The alliteration in here is both difficult to read out loud and zesty as hell. I can remember Miss Temple walking lightly and rapidly along our drooping line. Her plaid cloak which the frosty wind fluttered, gathered close about her and encouraging us by precept and example to keep up our spirits and march forward, as she said, like stalwart soldiers. The other teachers, poor things, were generally themselves too much dejected to attempt the task of cheering others. How we longed for the light and heat of a blazing fire when we got back, but to the little ones at least, this was denied. Each hearth in the schoolroom was immediately surrounded by a double row of great girls, and behind them the younger children crouched in groups, wrapping their starved arms in their pinafores. This is actually really interesting. It's a dialect note in my book that starved meant frozen in the north of England when this book was written. That seems right, because starvation and being frozen go together so tightly in these. Just a little color that you can expect from the public access read-along. A little solace came at tea time in the shape of a double ration of bread, a whole instead of a half slice. <laughs> it's desperate. With the delicious addition of a thin scrape of butter. It was the abdominal treat to which we all looked forward from Sabbath to Sabbath. I generally contrived to reserve a moiety of this bounteous repast for myself, but the remainder I was invariably obliged to part with. Moiety means portion. And abdominal means weekly. I had to look up a lot of words in this chapter. The Sunday evening was spent in repeating by heart the church catechism and the 5th, 6th, and 7th chapters of St. Matthew, and in listening to the long sermon read by Miss Miller, whose irrepressible yawns attested her weariness. So for those of you who don't know, the 5th, 6th, and 7th chapters of St. Matthew, those are better known as the Beatitudes. They read like the general one that we know, like blessed are the meek, but they also read the way deeper cuts, which is what people point to whenever Christians are opposed to gay marriage, and they're like, oh, but you wear a beard and you braid your hair. So that's important. That'll come up later. A frequent interlude of these performances was the enactment of a part of the Eutychus by some half dozen of little girls who, overpowered by sleep, would fall down, if not out of the third loft, yet off the fourth form, and be taken up half dead. So the Eutychus is a story about a little boy who fell asleep during a biblical story and he fell to his death. 
and that's a lesson. There's a lesson in that. The remedy was to thrust them forward into the center of the schoolroom and oblige them to stand there till the sermon was finished. Sometimes their feet failed them, and they sunk together in a heap. They were then propped up with the monitor's high stools. I have not yet alluded to the visits of Mr. Brocklehurst, and indeed the gentleman was from home during the greater part of my first month after my arrival, perhaps prolonging his stay with his friend the Archdeacon. His absence was a relief to me. I need not say that I had my own reasons for dreading his coming, but come he did at last. One afternoon, I had then been three weeks at Lowood. As I was sitting with a slate in my hand, puzzling over a sum in long division, my eyes raised in abstraction to the window, caught sight of a figure just passing. I recognized almost instinctively that gaunt outline, and then, two minutes after, all the school teachers included rose in mass. It was not necessary for me to look up in order to ascertain whose interest they thus greeted. A long stride measured the schoolroom, and presently beside Miss Temple, who herself had risen, stood the same black column which had frowned on me so ominously from the hearthrug of Gateshead. I now glanced sideways at this piece of architecture. Yes, I was right. It was Mr. Brocklehurst, buttoned up in a surtout, and looking longer, narrower, and more rigid than ever. Surtout is an overcoat. Such good atmospheric tension building, right? Like we get him through the window, we get like the sound of everybody rising, and then we get the yeah. architecture of his craggy gaunt frame. And that's the thing, like the idea of architecture and like the solidness, but then seeing him just passing, like thinking about like a solid form kind of like moving across a window is so eerie. Oh, it's just fearful. Mm-hmm. I love describing a human being as a column. People should do that more often. It's such good character building. Truth. I wish the children at Lowood could have known that you can extract milk from all manner of things, and maybe then they could have had more milk. At least they would have been a little more nourished. They're weak little (laughs) bird bones. I mean, they're like half dead, and they're drinking coffee, so they're also going to be stunted. Like, it's just like a generation of half-formed young women who are going to be susceptible to tuberculosis. So, quick pause. I've been thinking about this. So... Mm-hmm. You know, everyone was, by today's standards, malnourished, and everyone was significantly smaller. Human bodies were significantly smaller, at least in Europe and the Americas. And, you know, I went wedding dress shopping with Claire, our producer's wife, and we went to a vintage shop, and the woman was like, okay, so when you try this on, just know, like, you're not going to be able to get the sleeves on because bones were smaller in the 50s. And she's like, it doesn't matter what your waist size is, like, your bones are bigger on your shoulders and it was just shocking to see the difference between like a 1950s armhole standard armhole and an armhole what's required today and then I think about the fact that Kathleen Woodowis always wrote that her heroines from you know the 19th century the 18th century were small compared to all the others how big were those women very small indeed like I don't think they were cracking like four seven you know what I mean I think like yeah they must have been so small itty bitty childlike even well Men tend to have a thing for childlike women, as we're about to discover in Jane Eyre. I had my own reasons for being dismayed at this apparition. I hate this. She says I have my own reasons twice in one page, but whatever. Someone should have caught that. It's a first novel. She had all ten of her sisters probably (laughs) read this. and, And her weirdo brother. And her weirdo brother. And none of them, well, I'm sure they all said something. And she was like, I hate you all. And I'm keeping it to spite you fuckers every time you see it. Yeah. 
And now here we are 174 years later. Did you know yesterday was Jane Eyre's publishing birthday? I had no idea. Yeah. That's wonderful. And it's proper that it's October. Yeah, I learned a fun fact because I looked up on YouTube because I wanted to see how much a first edition was. And they published the first edition. It was a really reputable publisher. But the cloth-bound version came out in three volumes. And they did that so that lending libraries could charge you three times for one book. Capitalism. And also, if you have $65,000, one of those first editions could be yours. That seems like such a steal. Christmas is right around the corner. Yeah, Christmas is right around the corner. Shakespeare's first folio just went for 10 million. I would have assumed that this would have cracked 100,000. Well, first of all, publishing was way more common by the time Jane Eyre came out. So Totally. It's like a difference of 200 years. First editions are a little bit more bountiful. I read something crazy. Like the last time a first edition of Jane Eyre sold, it sold for like 38,000 in the 90s. So it has been increasing in value. And I think there's like three on the market. Isn't that wild? It is. For the low, low price of a Hummer, you too can have a Jane Eyre first edition. (laughs) A Hummer or a Jane Eyre first edition? It was in really good condition too. Mm, I would definitely take the Jane Eyre. Someone had bound it and like not touched it. The only yellowing was on the glued in first and last page. That's crazy to me. Okay, anyways. People take good care of things sometimes when you don't use them. Can't relate. I had my own reasons for being dismayed at this apparition. Too well I remembered the perfidious hints given by Mrs. Reed about my disposition, etc. The promise pledged by Mr. Brocklehurst to apprise Miss Temple and the teachers of my vicious nature. All along I had been dreading the fulfillment of this promise. I had been looking out daily for the coming man, whose information respecting my past life and conversation was to brand me as a bad child forever. Now here he was. He stood at Miss Temple's side. He was speaking low in her ear. I did not doubt he was making disclosures of my villainy, and I watched her eye with painful anxiety, expecting every moment to see its darker orb turn on me a glance of repugnance and contempt. I listened to, and as I happened to be seated quite at the top of the room, I caught most of what he said. Its import relieved me from my immediate apprehension. I suppose, Miss Temple, the thread I brought at Loughton will do. It struck me that it would be just the quality for the calico chemises, and I sorted the needles to match. You may tell Miss Smith that I forgot to make a memorandum of the darning needles, but she shall have some papers sent in next week, and she is not on any account to give out more than one at a time to each pupil. If they have more, they are more apt to be careless and lose them. And oh, ma'am, I wish the woolen stockings were better looked to. When I was here last, I went into the kitchen garden and examined the clothes drying on the line. There was a quantity of black hose in a very bad state of repair. From the size of the holes in them, I was sure they had not been well mended from time to time. He paused. Your directions shall be attended to, sir, said Miss Temple. Let's just picture him out in the garden looking at little girl's stockings. Fondling them. And also like completely misreading the situation. Like, of course they're being well cared to. They're just like... They're threadbare. You can't stitch them anymore. There's only so much you can do. And ma'am, he continued, the laundress tells me some of the girls have two clean tuckers in the week. It is too much. The rules limit them to one. I think I can explain that circumstance, sir. Agnes and Catherine Johnstone were invited to take tea with some friends at Loughton last Thursday, and I gave them leave to put on clean tuckers for the occasion. 
Mr. Brocklehurst nodded. And so here, the book is illustrating to us that it's a concerted effort to hide the what are abuses. But I think this is kind of bringing up an interesting question. Like, I think Mr. Brocklehurst thinks he's a good person, as we're going to find out. Mm-hmm. I'm probably t- bringing this up too soon, so I'm just going to keep reading. There's one thing that you said, Miss Temple is doing this to hide abuses, and I think that's partially true, but I also think Miss Temple, not being very separated from especially the older girls in age, recognizes the horrific embarrassment that like being dirty yeah. and showing up to someone else's house is especially on a young woman and so like it's not just to hide abuses but I think also potentially to protect these girls well that's a really good point is that the road to hell is paved with good intentions as they say let us continue speaking of which or you know oftentimes there's like little leaves of good intentions on the path to hell Well, for once it may pass, but please not to let circumstance occur too often. And there's another thing which surprised me, I find, in settling accounts with the housekeeper, that a lunch consisting of bread and cheese has twice been served out to the girls during the past fortnight. How is this? I looked over the regulations, and I find no such meals as lunch mentioned. Who introduced this innovation, and by what authority? God, people are tattling. I must be responsible for the circumstance, sir, replied Miss Temple. The breakfast was so ill-prepared that the pupil could not possibly eat it, and I dared not allow them to remain fasting till dinner time. Madam, allow me an instant. You are aware that my plan in bringing up these girls is not to accustom them to habits of luxury and indulgence, but to render them hardy, patient, self-denying. Should any little accidental disappointment of the appetite occur, such as spoiling of a meal, the under or overdressing of a dish, the incident ought not to be neutralized by replacing with something more delicate the comfort lost. Thus, Pam the body and subverting the aim of this institution. It ought to be improved to the spiritual edification of the pupils by encouraging them to evince fortitude under the temporary privation. A brief address on those occasions would not be mistimed wherein a judicious instructor would take the opportunity of referring to the sufferings of the primitive Christians. to the torments of martyrs, to the exhortations of our blessed Lord himself calling upon his disciples to take up their cross and follow him, to his warnings that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, to his divine consolations. If ye suffer hunger or thirst for my sake, happy are ye. Oh, madam, when you put bread and cheese instead of burned porridge into these children's mouths, you may indeed feed their vile bodies, but you little think of how you starve their immortal souls. Born porridge in their vile bodies. Mr. Brocklehurst again paused, perhaps overcome by his feelings. Miss Temple had looked down when he first began to speak to her, but she now gazed straight before her. And her face, naturally pale as marble, appeared to be assuming also the coldness and fixity of that material, especially her mouth, closed as if it would have required a sculptor's chisel to open it. And her brow settled gradually into petrified severity. Meantime, Mr. Brocklehurst, standing on the hearth with his hands behind his back, majestically surveyed the whole school. Suddenly, his eye gave a blink, as if it had met something that either dazzled or shocked its pupil. Turning, he said, in a more rapid accent than he had hitherto used. 
Miss Temple, Miss Temple, what, what is the girl with the curled hair? Red hair, ma'am, curled, curled all over. And extending his cane, he pointed to the awful object, his hand shaking as he did so. It is Julia Severn, replied Miss Temple very quietly. Julia Severn, ma'am, and why has she or any other curled hair? Why, in defiance of every precept and principle of this house, does she conform to the world so openly here in an evangelical charitable establishment as to wear her hair in one manner? of curls. Julia's hair curls naturally, returned Miss Temple still more quietly. Naturally, yes, but we are not to conform to nature. I wish these girls to be children of grace, and why that abundance? I have again and again intimated that I desire the hair to be arranged closely, modestly, plainly. Miss Temple, that girl's hair must be cut off entirely. I will send a barber tomorrow, and I see others who have far too much of the excrescence. That tall girl, tell her to turn round. Tell all the first form to rise up and direct their faces to the wall. Miss Temple passed her handkerchief over her lips, as if to smooth away the involuntary smile that curled them. She gave the order, however, and when the first class could take in what was required of them, they obeyed. Leaning back on my bench, I could see the looks and grimaces with which they commented on this maneuver. It was a pity Mr. Brocklehurst could not see them, too. He would perhaps have felt that, whatever he might do with the outside of the cup and the platter, the inside was further beyond his interference than he imagined. The more things Things change, the more things stay the same. This expression of, and just like a real understanding of how men's contempt is so knotted up with desire. And that women witness it in groups and are still powerless against it, especially when those men have power over them. Yeah, and that they are exceedingly young. Exceedingly are meant to take responsibility for the natural texture of their hair and the their height take on all of that. We discussed that in the Mistress of Melon episode, I believe. We did. I do want to take a quick note because I think my explanatory notes get kind of petty and funny. <laughs> but when I'm he excited. is talking about if you suffer hunger or thirst, my note says, a further jumble of biblical text used in a completely literal and reductive way that is not helpful. That's editorializing in the footnotes. Love it. He scrutinized the reverse of these living metals for some five minutes, then pronounced the sentence. These words fell like a knell of doom. All those top knots must be cut off. Miss Temple seemed remonstrate. Madam, he pursued, I have a master to serve whose kingdom is not of this world. My mission is to mortify in these girls the lusts of the flesh, to teach them to clothe themselves with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with braided hair and costly apparel, and each of the young persons before us has a string of hair twisted in plates which vanity itself might have woven. These, I repeat, must be cut off. Think of the time wasted of Mr. Brocklehurst was here interrupted. Three other visitors, ladies, now entered the room. They ought to have come a little sooner to have heard his lecture on dress, for they were splendidly attired in velvet, silk, and furs. The two younger of the trio, fine girls of 16 and 17, had gray beaver hats, then in fashion, shaded with ostrich plumes, and from under the brim of this graceful headdress fell a profusion of light tresses elaborately curled. The elder lady was enveloped in a costly velvet shawl trimmed with ermine, mm. and she wore a false front of French curls. False front being a wiglet, a little bitty wig for one part of your head. My Aunt Jana was well known for her wiglets, and one time my mom pulled it off her head in the middle of the school hallway. I stand by my statement that sisters have the most complicated relationship of any familial bond. 
These ladies were deferentially received by Miss Temple as Mrs. and the Mrs. Brocklehurst and conducted to seats of honor at the top of the room. It seems they had come in the carriage with their reverend relative and had been conducting a rummaging scrutiny of rooms upstairs while he transacted business with the housekeeper, questioning the laundress and lecturing the superintendent. They now proceeded to address divers remarks and reproofs to Miss Smith, who was charged with the care of the linen and the inspection of the dormitories, but I had no time to listen to what they said. Other matters called off and enchained my attention. Hitherto, while gathering up the discourse of Mr. Brocklehurst and Miss Temple, I had not, at the same time, neglected precautions to secure my own personal safety, which I thought would be effected if I could only elude observation. To this end, I had sat well back on the form, and while seeming to be busy with my sum, had held my slate in such a manner as to conceal my face. I might have escaped notice had not my treacherous slate somehow happened to slip from my hand, and following in an obtrusive crash directly drawn every eye upon me. Ugh, my chest tightens. I knew that it was all over now. As I stopped to pick up the two fragments of slate, I rallied my forces for the worst. It came. (laughs) She just does not disappoint at any turn. It's so good. This chapter is so fun, even though it's not at all fun. It's just like very acerbic. Mm-hmm. And I think it has like a, a reasonable target. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't feel over the top. Mm-mm. A careless girl, said Mr. Brocklehurst. And immediately after, it is the new pupil, I perceive. And before I could draw a breath, I must not forget I have word to say respecting her. Then aloud, how loud it seemed to me, let the child who broke her slate come forward. Of my own accord, I could not have stirred. I was paralyzed. But the two great girls who sat on each side of me set me on my legs and pushed me toward the dread judge. And then Miss Temple gently assisted me to his very feet. And I caught her whispered counsel. Don't be afraid, Jane. I saw it was an accident. You shall not be punished. The kind whisper went to my heart like a dagger. Oh, no. Another minute and she will despise me for a hypocrite, thought I, and an impulse of fury against Reed, Brocklehurst, and Co. bounded in my pulse at the conviction. I was no Helen Burns. Get it! I was no Helen Burns. Fetch that stool, said Mr. Brocklehurst, pointing to a very high one from which a monitor had just risen. It was brought. Place the child upon it. And I was placed there, by whom I don't know. I was in no condition to note particulars. I was only aware that they had hoisted me up to the height of Mr. Brocklehurst's nose, that he was within a yard of me, and that a spread of shot orange and purple silk pelisses and a cloud of silvery plumage extended and waved below me. Mr. Brocklehurst hemmed. Ladies, said he, turning to his family, Miss Temple, teachers and children, you all see this girl? Of course they did, for I felt their eyes directed like burning glasses against my scorched skin. You see, she is yet young. You observe she possesses the ordinary form of childhood. God has graciously given her the shape that he has given to all of us. No signal deformity points her out as a marked character. Who would think that the evil one had already found a servant and agent in her? And yet such, I grieve to say, is the case. A pause in which I began to steady the palsy of my nerves and to feel that the Rubicon had passed and that the trial, no longer to be shirked, must be firmly sustained. She's finding her resolve and her rage and her ability to stick through something. 
My dear children, pursued the black marble clergyman with pathos, this is a sad, a melancholy occasion, for it becomes my duty to warn you that this girl, who might be one of God's own lambs, is a little castaway, not a member of the true flock, but evidently an interloper and an alien. You must be on your guard against her. You must shun her example. If necessary, avoid her company, exclude her from your sports, and shut her from your converse. Teachers, you must watch her. Keep your eyes on her movements. Weigh well her words. Scrutinize her actions. Punish her body to save her soul, if indeed such salvation be possible. For, my tongue falters while I tell it, this girl, this child, the native of a Christian land, worse than many, a little heathen who says its prayers to Brahma and kneels before Juggernaut, this girl is a liar. Juggernaut is the title of Krishna in Hinduism, used metaphorically to refer to blind devotion to idols. I didn't know that. Juggernaut has a different meaning nowadays. Sure do. Now came a pause of ten minutes, during which I, by this time in perfect possession of my wits, observed all the female Brocklehurst produce their pocket handkerchiefs and apply them to their optics, while the elderly lady swayed herself to and fro, and the younger ones whispered, How shocking! Mr. Brocklehurst resumed, This I learned from her benefactress, from the pious and charitable lady who adopted her in her orphan state, reared her as her own daughter, and whose kindness, whose generosity, the unhappy girl repaid by an ingratitude so bad, so dreadful, that at least her excellent patroness, at last her excellent patroness, was obliged to separate her from her own young ones, fearful lest her vicious example should contaminate their purity. She has sent her here to be healed, even as the Jews of old sent their disease to the troubled pools of Bethesda. And the teacher's superintendent, I beg of you not to allow the waters to stagnate round her. I don't know that Bethesda reference. I'm going to look at my footnotes. Is that okay? Yeah, my footnotes say this is from John 5, 2 through 9. Yeah. An angel was believed to move the waters, hence curing the disabled. Jesus heals the blind, sick, and lame at the pool of Bethesda. John chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. Footnotes are wild. It's weird that our footnotes are so different. It's weird that they're different. Like, they're the same. But, like, I think that says a lot that they're two very different. Like, this is the relevant part of the Bible verse for you. Mm -hmm. I tend to agree with my version on this case. With this sublime conclusion, Mr. Brocklehurst adjusted the top button of his surtout, muttered something to his family who rose, bowed to Miss Temple, and then all the great people sailed in state from the room. Turning at the door, my judge said, Let her stand half an hour longer on that stool, and let no one speak to her during the remainder of the day. There I was then, mounted aloft. I, who had said I could not bear the shame of standing on my natural feet in the middle of the room, was now exposed to general view on a pedestal of infamy. What my sensations were, no language can describe. But just as they all rose, stifling my breath and constricting my throat, a girl came up and passed me. In passing, she lifted her eyes. What a strange light inspired them. What an extraordinary sensation that ray sent through me. How the new feeling bore me up. It was as if a martyr, a hero, had passed, a slave or victim, and imparted strength in the transit. I mastered the rising hysteria, lifted up my head, and took a firm stand on the stool. Helen Burns asked some slight question about her work of Miss Smith, was chidden for the triviality of the inquiry, returned to her place, and smiled at me as she again went by. What a smile. 
I remember it now, and I know that it was the effluence of fine intellect, of true courage. It lighted up her marked lineaments, her thin face, her sunken gray eye, like a reflection from the aspect of an angel. Yet at that moment, Helen Burns wore on her arm the untidy badge. Scarcely an hour ago, I heard her condemned by Miss Scatcherd to a dinner of bread and water on the morrow, because she had blotted an exercise and copying it out. Such is the imperfect nature of man. Such spots are there on the disk of the clearest planet, and eyes like Miss Scatcherd's can only see those minute defects and are blind to the full brightness of the orb. <laughs> A reading from Jane Eyre. Next week. Chapter 8.